Hello and welcome to IPO Stories, a podcast that explores the tracks to IPOs for companies and their stakeholders. Through interviews with professionals who have led companies to public markets, we will learn about what it takes to IPO a business, the do's and the don'ts before, during, and after the listing process. I'm Gauthier. I'm Pear, co-founders of Amundsen Investment Management, a Europe-based equity manager. Today, we will talk about EST strategy for private and public companies with Giovanni Aquaro, partner at ERM, one of the world's leading sustainability consultants. While ESG has become one of the important investment trends over the last 10 years, the transition from being a privately owned company to a public company is not easy, as the requests from investors are greater once listed. With Giovanni, we wanted to understand why defining a sustainability strategy is important, even for private companies, which steps to take to define it, and what parts of ESG to focus on. Before we start, we would like to remind our listeners that our discussion is not financial advice, nor an investment recommendation, nor a solicitation to buy or sell any financial instruments or an offer for financial services or any other transaction. The information contained in the recording has no contractual value and are destined for an informational purpose only. Amundsen Investment Management and the participants in this podcast may have holdings in the companies being discussed. Giovanni, thank you very much for joining us today. Maybe you can start by introducing what uh, ERM is and uh, how you work with uh, companies. Thanks, Per. ERM is a pure play consultancy firm, more or less, you know, 8,000 professional uh, around the world. So I would say the largest uh, pure sustainability consultancy firm in the world. And we help, you know, organizations on their sustainability journeys. Basically, this means for us, you know, starting from setting the strategy, identifying the target, and then defining action plan and helping our clients in operationalizing these targets. They can be, you know, corporate clients, investors. So we are basically present in all the, the different industries in the market. Yeah, I think this is in a nutshell what we are, what we do. And you mostly work with the companies that are already listed or also private companies? As I was mentioning, we work with both market segments. We work with uh, corporate clients, listed companies, you know, but we also work a lot in the private market. Personally, my, my sweet spot is indeed in the, in the private market, you know, working with uh, private investors, both in the pure private market, but also helping them in a pre-IPO phase. I think recently, you know, the growing demand of ESG data, both from private markets, is in a way aligning and basically clearing the gap between private market and public market. So I do think that now it's extremely important to have a comprehensive view that can support the companies into their journey. So how to basically transition, you know, from a private market to a public market. We'll talk a bit about the difference between uh, public and private in terms of ESG. But first, I want to talk a bit about ESG ratings to set the scene, because uh, you have a sustainability institute that uh, publishes an annual Rate the Raters report, and uh, you rank the different ESG rating providers according to investor and company perception. Can you explain to us a bit how the companies should look at those different ESG ratings and what they should really be optimizing for? Yeah, first of all, you know, I think a context analysis should be the first step. Talking about ratings, a corporate should consider as primary stakeholders, not only, you know, the investors, but also its own value chain. I think it's important, basically, to understand what the least common multiple is, basically, between, you know, your clients and your investors. So I think finding this convergence could be really the silver bullet. What we are observing in the market is that investors are looking 
beyond ratings. They are looking beyond simple scoring. They are basically trying to destructure a bit ESG in its main components. So these components, you know, might be environmental aspects like carbon emission or uh, the carbonization targets, you know, or social aspects or supply chain related aspects. So what we are basically, you know, observing in the market on our daily daily job and support to the company is that investor commitments are becoming very specific and quantitative. This means that they are using ratings, not, you know, as an overall assessment of the performance of the company, but very often, you know, to advise their decision, their investment decision on very specific topics. Therefore, basically, you know, what we are also observing is that A single scoring is basically not enough for the most advanced investors, at least. Ratings are for sure useful tool, but they can basically represent just a proxy that, you know, investors can be using, but then they will also look for primary data. For example, as I was mentioning, you know, they will want to have primary data to understand the reliability of a transition trajectory or, you know, of a specific decarbonization commitment. The other point is that I think it's becoming more and more relevant is that ratings are, you know, not, not often very, very clear in their models. And what we are observing is that there is a clear and strong need for transparency. You know, as the investor, they have to access quantitative data. And this is particularly true for carbon, you know, the need for transparency that investors are requiring to the rating providers is growing quite a lot in the last uh, couple of years. There seems to be a, a bit of a divergence already between public companies, which have historically been served by sort of Sustainalytics, S&P, MSCI, and the private companies where there hasn't really been a consistent uh, sort of or leading scoring provider. And the ESG measurement is left more to the individual private equity fund to do their, their internal assessment, which also leads to slightly different expectations when a company actually moves into the public markets and they discover the world of, of ESG ratings providers. How do you think the companies can really bridge this gap? Yeah, good point. Indeed, I mean, standards are very different and I think they are converging in a way, but there is a lot to do. What I can observe, I mean, from my perspective, is that private equity manager, especially when acting as controlling shareholder, they know their portfolio companies very well. It is easy, you know, for them and very direct for them influencing the portfolio company ESG strategy. And what happens, you know, is that very often they prefer focusing on sustainability aspects that are directly linked to the value creation, especially, you know, in relation to the value chain, more than understanding or defining some clear requirements to standardize reporting and maximize transparency. So what we observe in the private market is that very often the companies, they have a lot to communicate. They have many programs and initiatives about sustainability, but they might not be, you know, equipped to communicate sustainability in the right way. They are basically not speaking the public market language, or they are quite difficult to be understood by a rating provider. I think this is a very crucial part for the role of a private investor. We should be basically the one, you know, bridging this gap. And I think, you know, communicating effectively to the market is nowadays, you know, equally important than having effective solution in place to address sustainability challenges, especially if you are considering an IPO as the next step. And there's this request from both investors and corporates of stronger consistency and uh, quality from the ESG raters. Is this something you've seen change over the last years or uh, is there any evolution there? 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. I was mentioning, you know, there is a growing demand for transparency. So corporates and investors basically are willing to know the criteria behind the ratings to, to understand, you know, how the different KPIs are basically contributing to the final score. So what we see is that there is a, a strong need for aligning strategies, asset allocation with certain specific sustainability targets. And a score that is unclear cannot represent a solution for this topic. Again, the direction is clearly looking for transparency. And it is also, you know, about reporting the performances around each specific sustainability item separately. So having basically ratings that allow the understanding of the different elements can be really, you know, a must-have for the investor and is becoming really a priority. And I think this is also demonstrated by the success of uh, rating providers like the Carbon Disclosure Project. And when you advise companies, is there any specific segments of the entire ESG universe that you advise them to spend more time on initially? Is it sort of climate first or how is that? There are, I think, aspects which are more advanced than others. For sure, climate is one of them. So there are some investors specifically looking at climate as the, the number one priority. This is quite true and actual, I mean, in Europe, also because of the youth taxonomy and the regulation, which is pushing exactly in this direction, while there is a slightly lower level of maturity on the social aspects, the regulation is still under discussion. I think, generally speaking, we can also say that private market has been traditionally very heterogeneous in relation to ESG, ESG performances and, you know, the items to be understood in relation to ESG. So we are basically not able to identify a clear trend while in the public sector, there is, as expected, you know, an higher level of standardization. The other relevant point is that, you know, there is a strong component which is sector specific. So there are items which are extremely relevant in certain sectors more than others. So there is a, a key, you know, component which is related to the sector of the target company of the invested company. Moving now to uh, the uh, investment side and, and a bit this private to public divide. It seems that public markets were a bit earlier to adopt ESG. This accelerated, I guess, around 2015, seems to me. In private markets, we know that the adoption has been slower just because investor push for it has also been slower. Regulation has been a bit slower to catch up there. But there is a clear acceleration now, and especially in Europe. So can you tell us a bit more about how ESG has been adopted by private market participants and the influence it's having now on transactions within uh, private equity? My perception about this is that, you know, uh, as I was telling you, I've been working in the private market for the last 15 years. My perception is slightly different. So the main gap of the private market was mostly about communication, standardization, and transparency. Basically, the main point, you know, was that reporting was not perceived as material. And therefore, most of the ESG initiative, you know, were poorly monitored and basically not communicated outside with, you know, with third parties, with uh, third party stakeholders. Private market, as I was saying, has been strongly impacted by some new regulations like SFDR. SFDR, for the ones who are not familiar with it, is a basically a European regulation 
which came into force into 2019 and basically sets the transparency and reporting standards on sustainability for private market participants. Basically, you know, with the SFDR now, private market players are subject to clear and defined reporting requirements and they have to define ex ante the investment criteria. And in particular, you know, the environmental and social characteristic that a specific investment product, like a private equity fund, for example, has to promote. So again, the level of transparency and uh, the effort that has to be dedicated to the compliance with this regulation is strictly dependent on the classification and the regulation. But anyway, what we have observed is that, you know, SFDR has created a very strong push for standardizing the communication around sustainability. The other key piece of regulation that we have to handle in the last couple of years is for sure uh, uh, CSRD which is basically lowering the threshold for uh, mandatory sustainability reporting to a number of small and medium enterprises. The threshold is going to be 40 million euro revenue and 250 employees. So you can understand, you know, the extent of the impact of this regulation on the market. We have thousands, you know, of companies that are going to be required to report. And most of these companies are a part of the private market because these are not listed companies. So this is another, you know, very important update and new regulation that is driving the market in this direction of transparency. I think, you know, it's also in a way positive for bridging again the gap between the private market and the public market because the target companies that are now subject to higher scrutiny also when they are into the private market, they can be in some way more prepared than in the past were seeking for our capitals and also in case they will want to, to access, you know, the public market. I think, you know, we are really observing something disruptive in the market and something that is more and more closing the gap between the two markets. Just to give you, you know, a last, to make a last consideration on this process, you have to consider that in 2023, basically all the private equity funds, you know, with a growth strategy and generalist strategy, so basically investing in small and medium enterprises, which have been put on the market, they were classified as Article 8 funds, which means funds that are promoting environmental and social characteristics that are taking this commitment in a very early stage with their investors and so that they are required to monitor and to report the performance on environmental and social topics. One big difference between being a public markets investor and a private equity investor is control, right? So if you are buying out the entire company or at least control of the company, you could buy sort of a poor performing ESG asset and actually have the mandate to transform it to a higher performing ESG asset, which you don't really have the luxury of doing as a public markets investor because you're not in control. How are you seeing that on, on the private equity side? Is it more sort of buying high-performing ESG assets or is there a, quite a high proportion of underperforming but to-be-improved assets? What I see very clear is that, you know, most of the private equity investors are basically implementing uh, an integration strategy. So they buy the asset independently, you know, from the actual current ESG performance, but with the goal of improving the performance. So it's about integrating ESG and improving the performance because they have the leverage, you know, as you said, to influence the company strategy and to influence very directly the company performance. What we observe in the public market is much more a best-in-class selection. So there are certain thresholds and, and minimum requirements the company should have before being invested and that should maintain, you know, during the investment period. So there is quite a significant difference about this point, yeah. 
So does the fact that an IPO is a possibility, does that mean you would integrate different aspects into the ESG analysis of the company? Yeah, this is a very interesting point. This should be done. What I'm observing, you know, working with clients daily is that very often IPO is one of the possibility. So there is, uh, you know, not a clear strategy since the beginning. IPO could be an exit, but it's not the exit. So, you know, when you have to start working on this kind of project, you have to keep in mind, you know, that there might be different exit strategies. And so you have to define something which can be suitable for all of them, or at least most of them. Anyway, I mean, I think for every analysis that is aimed at defining basically an exit strategy, which could be an IPO, it's extremely important to to start from an understanding, as I said, of the contest and also defining a clear strategy, which is based on a materiality exercise. So this could be, you know, the common point of all the exit strategy. You have also to consider that when you are engaging potentially, you know, with a, with a private equity buyer, they have usually more time. They are willing to spend more effort in evaluating a single transaction. Therefore, you know, rating are less relevant. There is usually enough time for them for understanding the company, for understanding your own and specific storytelling. And therefore, you know, again, the comprehensiveness and, and the clarity of the reporting, maybe for them, it's not really the, the number one priority. While when the IPO is a possibility, I think a clear reporting, an understandable strategy, a clear materiality assessment, which can be easily transferred to your investor is absolutely the number one priority. I think that an effective communication in a pre-IPO phase could be even more important than the actual performance, let me say, because investors usually they have not so much time. They need, you know, information that can be, let me say, plug and play into their evaluation criteria. Investors really need consistency and comparability as a priority point for them to evaluate the transaction. Also, what you should be able to do when addressing and, and looking for capital into the public market is ensuring, you know, a good connection, a clear connection between data, KPIs, and your sustainability strategy. Because very often what we observe is that there are data, there are performance, there are KPIs, and then there is the strategy, but then there is no clear connection of the two, and this can create some kind of concern on the investor side. One of our challenges as public markets investors is often that at the time of IPO, there's usually very little data. Some companies, few, will disclose emissions data and energy usage and a number of the ESG factors in their prospectus or in a sustainability report pre-IPO, but it's really very few of them. And you see a lot of even IPOs in 2022, 2023, who just do not disclose anything because they don't have to. So one of my questions is, is it because they're just not ready? They haven't prepared the data? And how long does it take to really move to that phase where you are ready to disclose your, your data? How long do you see that phase in many cases, I think the short answer is that you, you need at least one year. You have to set up the data collection system. Ideally, you also have to look at your data and you have to understand if these data are indeed aligned with your strategy. So timing is absolutely one of the main issues we are observing. Usually company, they start too late. The main point is really trying to combine, in a way, your ESG storytelling with the equity story. 
you shouldn't have an ESG strategy. You should have a strategy integrating ESG as a pillar or pillars of the strategy. So it's really about showing the relation between sustainability and your financial performance, your business plan, you know, to connect the sustainability topics, the ESG topics with what you are doing, where you are creating value. So I think something that is a bit underestimated is the importance of the materiality assessment in the process of preparing an IPO. Materiality assessment is the process where basically you are identifying, understanding the relative importance, you know, of the specific ESG and sustainability topics for your organization. This involves, you know, looking at a variety of factors with a couple of lenses, basically. The potential impact on your organization of the sustainability topics and the importance of this topic for your stakeholders. So you have have basically, you know, to combine these two point of views and you have to define the pillars of your strategy. Doing this, you can define the right KPIs, you can define the right action to be put in place to improve your KPIs and your performance. And basically you can create a clear connection, a clear relation between the strategy of your company, the sustainability topics driving your value chain, your business, and how you are leading and driving the company, you know, to be successful in dealing with this this topic. So at TRM, what are the main steps then to uh, formulating a sustainability strategy for a company? Everything starts from a sound materiality analysis. Basically, an analysis taking into consideration all your stakeholders. Then, if you want to summarize the steps, it could be uh, setting targets and integrate these targets into your strategies. And then you have to define a clear and actionable action plan, which is basically the tool your company will use to operationalize your strategy. And as a last point, monitoring and reporting. You need to, to monitor your progresses and you need to report them in a clear and effective way to your investor and to the entire value chain. And who would typically be involved in this at the company level? Is it uh, under the CFO or uh, how would that be? I think it should be ideally a joint effort. I think it's important that you know more than one function or department is involved in this exercise. For sure, I mean, what we are observing is that when the reporting process is led by uh, CFO, this is more efficient, more reliable. Generally, the quality of data is better. But of course, you know, uh, getting primary data, especially on environmental topics, could be something, you know, where you need a joint effort also from the operational function. So I think the idea is really to have a joint effort also having involved people engaging with clients, because as I was mentioning, you know, it's important that at the end of the day, this process has also an impact on value creation, that it is also recognized by your value chain, by your clients. So I think it is really a joint effort. Okay, and you said basically it's one year, you think, to be ready to disclose sufficiently. But how much time does it get for a company to get on track to become a leader in the space? You know, this is very a very good question. I've seen very different, very different situation. The ideal situation is for me a three-year journey because, you know, doing this, you have all the time to collect the data, to review your data, to implement some action and to see the results. If you are part of a transition project because there is a change in your uh, shareholding or other, you know, disruptive situation during the company life cycle, it could be even quicker. There are also, you know, certain extraordinary conditions in the market that can speed up this process. So I've also seen situations where basically a transformation has been completed in less than one year. 
Thank you very much, Giovanni, for uh, talking about ESG in uh, private and public companies. It was very helpful. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Per. Have a nice day. Thank you for listening to IPO Stories. In future episodes, we will host CEOs, CFOs, advisors, and other participants in the IPO process to learn from their experience, like from Giovanni today. If you like the show, please follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share the show with people around you. If you have questions about the IPO process that you'd like us to address with future guests, please get in touch at contact at ipostories.com.